Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Jason Lezak, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I am good, man. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you. Um, it's a real honor, man. You were part of the greatest relay in Olympic history, the uh, Sydney 2000 Olympics, man. Congratulations. Yeah, that was a wonderful experience to uh, <laughs> touch that wall and you know look up at the scoreboard, but then look over at these crazy Australians playing the air guitar in our face. That was, that was great. <laughs> I just had to jump in on that one, man, and throw it out there. Um, I knew it was coming, don't worry. <laughs> Listen, everybody knows your history and your story, and it's incredible. Um, yeah, uh, to be honest, you've got an incredible life story. You know, where you are today, even even as the GM of the Cali Condors, there's so much that you've put into your life. Do you, do you often look back at what you've done throughout your career and kind of just pinch yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty unbelievable because as a kid, obviously um, – amongst basketball swimming was one of the dreams I had to go to Olympics and not only be able to go to Olympics, but do it as many times as I did. And then to continue in the sport since I've been retired and, you know, giving back in the clinics and now being able to stay in it doing, uh, you know, as a general manager and seeing all the best swimmers in the world compete and uh, being a part of that. And it is, it's uh, pretty surreal. Well, listen, man, we got, we've got a history, you and I, I probably, I probably have the most swimming history with you than than almost any other competitor in the world because you pretty much made the u.s team the same time that i made the australian team you know basically from you were on the team from 99 all the way up to you know 11 when you finally retired but um you know we we raced each other everywhere we went to olympic games we went to world championships we went to pampax we went to world short course together so i mean you and i were always going head to head right yeah, I had, a, I had a great time racing you. And the nice thing that uh, I'm going to say about not just yourself, but, you know, your fellow Australians is you guys always know how to treat people and be respect. I mean, when we were out there racing, you know, I wanted to beat you. You wanted to beat me. But then uh, when it's over, you're inviting me over to your mansion in Sydney, you know, to, to come hang out for dinner. So, I mean, that, that was that was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed racing in Australia because the sport there is a little different than it is in the United States. People love it. They sell out crowds. Uh, gets on live TV and uh, you know I had one of those fun skins races over there against you where I, we know you're good for one round but um, you know it's, it's always fun to, to do those races and in front of a crowd like that and I think the only time uh, you beat me was at the NC2As is that right? No we actually tied didn't we tie like the first time in the we, actually free, we did tie but you took, you took me down in the 50 so I'll give you that. Yeah, you couldn't get me on that one. No, you beat me plenty of times at international stages. Um, yeah, like I said, it was it was fun to race you. Um, it was fun to race your teammates on those relays as well. Well, the one thing I always knew about you is you were gonna be you were gonna be there. You were gonna be consistent, and you had to be on your A game that day in order to even have a chance to beat you because you were just so on point. And I kind of want to talk about that in in a minute because there was a time where you actually coached yourself, and that that blows my mind too. So I want to get into that. Um, but you were super consistent. So how did you figure out that not only being consistent on American soil, but then translate that into to you know, international meets being as consistent as you were over such a long period of time. 
I mean, I always took racing pretty serious, um, whether it was just a local little competition or if it was the World Championships or Olympics. So I think that was pretty big for me where I would mentally prepare for these little races um, to be able to push my body to where I needed to go. Um, a lot of times, you know, you show up at a meet that doesn't mean anything and you just swim, right? So the more I was able to, to actually think that this is more important than it was, it prepared me better for when it was important, which is why I think I had that consistency over the course of all those years is because I always took the racing pretty serious. Now, listen, let's go back to the kind of the beginning where you and I first met at, at NCAAs. I was swimming at Auburn, one of the, one of the powerhouses of swimming. You're swimming at what, UC Santa Barbara? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I remember um, someone on your team said something to me. Uh, we were in the elevator in the same hotel, and, you know, I shaved my head, and I was this, like, this bald hair, uh, this guy from Santa Barbara. And, you know, Auburn has 18 guys, and nobody knew who the heck I was. Um, and then after I showed him up on the first day, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, you're that, you're that kid from Santa Barbara. And it uh, wasn't so intimidating back then, but um, at least I was, you know, representing the school and doing pretty well. So why'd you choose Santa Barbara out of all the places you possibly could have gone? Why'd you end up there? I mean, coming out of high school, um, I had a big improvement my senior year, but you know, when everyone's recruiting my junior year, I was still at junior national level time. So I wasn't quite at that level I needed to be at to be recruited to those top schools like you were at. And uh, my progression really came slowly, but it was my junior year where I made that big breakthrough when I went from not even qualifying in NC2A as my sophomore year to making the finals my junior year. So that was a pretty huge season for me. It's pretty easy when you're surrounded by good people to make improvements. They force improvement in you. But you're at a school where you're probably at that stage, your junior year, you're, you're the best guy on the team. You probably don't have a lot of guys around you that are pushing you beyond, you know, where you're at. So how did you, how did you go from, you know, being in a team like that or being in um, a club like that to, to making finals at NCAAs? Well, I had to push myself that year um, to get to that level. I wasn't the fastest swimmer on the team to start that year. And uh, that was actually, uh, you know, a lot of people heard this story, but that was the year that I got kicked off my college team because I wasn't doing what it takes to be a part of a team. I just kind of showed up at practice, went through the motions, uh, wasn't working hard. So, you know, when you're on a team, I was not just bringing myself down, but I brought the team down as well. So getting back on that team, regaining that focus, doing all the things that it takes, I had those guys that were faster than me to look up to and, and want to beat those guys to try to get to that next level. And I think not only did I do well, but I think the guys around me did well too. And we had our, our best, uh, you know, relay that we've ever had in the history of our school. We broke the school record. We were less than a tenth of a second away from making NC2As on that relay. And it wasn't just because of me, those other three guys made improvements as well. So, you know, I think even though I became the fastest on the team that year, it wasn't that way when it started, but I think it was a good group of people to push each other. What do you mean by kicked off the team? Because I, I love that. I love the show NFL Turning Points. You know, you see, you watch a match and like something happens in the game and it just shifts the whole game. And that kind of reminds me of, of you. Like if you look at your career after that point where you get kicked off the team, it's one of the most amazing careers in swimming history. So what was the turning point for you in getting kicked off the team at that point? Well, I mean, like I said, I, I just wasn't doing what it takes. I mean, you got a team of, you know, 20 plus men and 20 plus women and when they see people doing things that you know like i said if i'm if i'm not finishing the set or if i'm you know showing up late or not showing up to practice you know other people notice that and it doesn't have a good sense of this is what team is about so for me i understood completely why the coach would do that um but i had to just really think back of 
I was five years old. I started this sport at eight years old. I had this dream to go to the Olympics. Um, at 10, I was one of the fastest in the whole country. So I kind of went through this top level down to a little, you know, a plateau down and then people caught up to me, passed me. And then I had to get back to that level again. And I knew that I wanted to be back at that level. I knew that I still wanted to make the Olympics. I just wasn't willing at that specific time to do what it takes. So that's where the mental game came in. And I had to really change that. And I had to think about why am I doing this? Do I still have this dream? Do I still want to be successful? And I did. So um, I had to come back to the coach. I wrote a contract. I said, these are the things I'm going to do different. I, I want to swim for you. And it was a lot of, about my teammates. These were my friends. I didn't want to let these guys down. I'd already been swimming with them for two and a half years. And, um, you know, as, as you know, and I swam well on relays, but through my whole career, I was a team player. I love team sports. So for me, it wasn't just about me coming back on the team and me making an Olympics one day. It was about my teammates at Santa Barbara as well. So it sounds like you, you know, you're making decisions before that that were counterintuitive to team concept. And then you came back and said, okay, all the decisions I make from now on are going to be based around the team. It's almost like you switched your mindset completely. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I've always had respect for these people and wanted them to do well. But um, I had to really understand that when it came to practice and doing certain things, you know, my behavior uh, would rub off on others and others would think, oh, if Jason's not working hard right now or if Jason's not showing up at practice, why do I need to? So um, I understood that and I, you know, came back with a, a better attitude and, and started to do what the coaches were expecting me to do. Well, listen, man, uh, we tied in 99 uh, in the 100 freestyle. We, I think we finished six in the 100 free, nothing to brag about. But, um, <laughs> but you know, going from that to then making your first U.S. Open team at that same year and going to Pan Pax in Australia, and then the following year, you know, um, being on the U.S. you know, relay team, um, that is – the, one of the greatest teams in history, you know, like going from sixth place at NCAAs to being on the best relay team in, in world history. I mean, that's a big leap in one year. So you must have made some major um, decisions to, to become the best athlete you could be just within that one year period. Yeah, no, definitely happened. Um, and especially, you know, finishing up college, then I could put the, for a year, I had the sole focus of just swimming. And this was a long time ago, as you know, there was, hardly any people that were really considered professional swimmers, you would finish college and you would just retire in a lot of mm -hmm. cases, or a lot of times people stayed in the college environment and you kind of still felt like you were in this college environment. Um, I went back home, got away from that. And I really just um, focused solely on swimming and did the little things. And, you know, I went from a, you know, 50.4 down to a 49.3, which was, I guess, kind of fast back then. Um, you know, just in a matter of a year. So that, you know, took me from, like you said, a good NC2A swimmer to one of the best in the country. What are the things uh, you were doing then to go from 50.4 to 49.3? What are some of the, the decisions you made in, in ways that you could get better to make that jump? I mean, besides the training that was a little different and that aspect of it, you know, I, I worked harder in the weight room. I worked harder in the pool, but there was also the little things. I mean, I, I was sleeping better. I was eating better. I was, you know, making sacrifices um, more and more of little things that you wouldn't even think about, you know, um, but little, the more sacrifices, more sacrifice I made, the better I got. So, I mean, that was through the course of my career, but over that one year, I, I thought there was a lot of little things like that, that added up to a big drop. 
Now, listen, what was, what was your Sydney uh, Olympic experience like for you? You know, I, I was on the Australian team and I see it from the Australian perspective. Some of my best friends were Michael Clem and, you know, Ian Thorpe and these guys that were on that winning relay. What was that experience like for you? I haven't really had that discussion with you in terms of, you know, being on that relay that was expected to win and then, you know, finishing with the silver medal, which is still an incredible result, but being beaten by the Australians, um, what was it like for you? It, it, honestly, it was, it was pretty tough to uh, receive that silver medal. As you said, it's still an amazing feat, but we looked at it. I personally, I looked at it as this is the race that I always watched as a kid growing up and the Americans didn't just win, we dominated. So knowing that you're going to be on this relay, that's almost given you're going to go win a gold medal. And we actually, if, if you add up all our times back then, we were the faster team. I think we had five guys that were top 10 in the world in the 100 freestyle. So there's no reason that we should lose that race. But as we know, it comes down to you actually have to perform, right? And the Australians just happened to perform much better than we did on that day. I'm not saying we did bad. They, they did much better. So for me, receiving that silver medal was a letdown. And um, I, I almost felt like when I was on that podium that I let my country down. Like this was supposed to be a gold medal. I'm supposed to be standing up there hearing the national anthem. And now I'm standing here at the silver medal. So I didn't think of it as, wow, this is amazing. I just won a silver medal. But I thought of it as we lost, we blew it, we let our country down. And it actually took me a little bit to, to comprehend that and realize that, like you just said, a silver medal is still an unbelievable feat. And um, I had to put that in perspective. It took me I don't know exact time, but I want to say it was a couple years later where I, it really clicked. And I thought, man, I, I have a silver medal from a relay at the Olympics. And, you know, as I'm continuing to swim and get better, knowing I still wanted a gold, but that's still a pretty amazing feat. It seemed to me that um, the race strategy kind of played out that you guys went out pretty quick, the first 50 and, and the Aussies kind of came home over the top a little bit, pretty much on all the legs, except for Michael's when he broke the world record on, on the first leg. Do you, did you kind of look at that and think, like, you know, I swam that wrong or, I sh you know, I could have done better there? Like, what are the regrets you have in that race? Yeah, I mean, I think we all did, right? Um, we did exactly what you said from uh, Neil going second, me third, Gary fourth. Every one of us jumped in and we overswam, not just the first 50, but I would say probably the first 25. Um, the first 25 of that race is, I'm going to go catch that guy right now. So instead of swimming the race and the strategy that maybe we had trained for the, the only thought in my mind, especially being a, as I say, a rookie, I was 24, but it was my first Olympics and I didn't have a ton of major international experience. So for me, I was just going after it and I'm thinking I'm going to catch this guy. And if you think maybe like in the college days or in, you know, NC2As or conference or something like that, you probably can catch this guy, but now you're going up against best in the world type here. So it's a little different. And I definitely overswam probably the first 25, which was the big difference on me fading at the end. I still had a pretty good split. I was, I was happy with my overall split, but I think if I swam it a little bit smarter, I would have been a little faster. And the other two guys could probably say the same thing. And the reason why I say that obviously is because, you know, eight years later, you're going to have one of the greatest performances in Olympic history. And I want to kind of compare the two in terms of the way that you felt like it went for you. So we'll get there in a minute, but, um, you know, so you have this experience, your first Olympics, you know, you win some medals. Um, great. Why do you decide to continue to continue swimming after that? Well, I think there was that, like that sense of, 
I blew it for this team USA, not like personally, but like as a team, like we blew it. Right. So, and I knew that I kept getting better. And, and as you, as I said, I dropped a second in that year and I knew that wasn't my peak. I knew that there was more in me. So I was just determined to number one, keep getting better. And number two, go back in 2004 and be on that podium winning the gold for team USA. What was your um, approach like over the next few years? Because you, you do swim the 100 and the 50 and, and you're consistent in both. But what was your approach in training? Did you train more for the 100 or did you train more for the 50 or what was it like for you? Yeah, no, I definitely think uh, my coach was more suited for the 100 style training. Um, you know, he had a lot of great 200 swimmers and he was all about doing pace work back then. Um, you know, I think Australia was one of the first countries that they had this smart idea, I would say about a little bit less meters and yards and more focused on pace. Right. And my coach was that kind of guy who was all about pace. And I worked a lot of hundred pace and i even though I did 200 pace, I, I still never swam that race, but I think, you know, those were the type of uh, events that were more suited for me. Um, even though my 50 was good and I just got away with being strong and, and you know, but probably less practice on the 50 than in the hundred. I honestly, I love the 50, you know, in 2002, I became the fastest in the world. Uh, you know, going, I just missed the going under 21 that year or under 22, I was 22 flat. Um, I, but you know, back then, like I said, that was, that was fast and that was ranked number one in the world. So for me, this was like a big jump of, I do have some speed and trying to really figure out how to, you know, do better in the 50 at that time. Did you ever get to 21? Yeah, I did. I did. It took me a couple more. I didn't do it in 2000, 2004 was the first time I did that. Ah, oh, damn, man. I hate you even more. I'm sorry. Now. You were 2200 something, right? 2207, man. I never got there. I actually had a manager at the time who told me if I go 21, he'll buy me a Harley Davidson. So I had a picture of a Harley Davidson <laughs> on, my, on my mirror in my bathroom. I looked at it every day that I woke up. I'm like, I'm getting this Harley. I'm getting this Harley go to the Olympics and go 2207. I was like, that was, well, that was 20, my biggest. 21.9 would have got you a medal, Brett. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could have ditched the medal for the Harley. That's what I wanted. I didn't <laughs> want the medal. <laughs> um, that's crazy. So, so in the lead up to, well, let's, let's talk about Athens then because Athens is kind of the next four years, you know, you're, you've got a lot more experience and you're going into that meet. What was your Athens experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was a really tough one uh, because, number one, I was looking at that relay for four years, and all I want to do was, you know, like I said, get on that podium and uh, hear the national anthem. And this time we got the bronze medal to start off the Olympics. So that, that, was, that was rough. I mean, I had a really good Olympic trials, and then I came during that training camp. I, I didn't necessarily know the best way to train during those five weeks of how hard to push yourself, how much to rest and all that. So on that relay, I didn't feel my 100% like I felt at trials. I still did okay, but, um, you know, I, I didn't split where I wanted to, and I was a little tired. And then I came back a couple of days later, and I thought, okay, I'm going to let my body rest a little bit. I'm going to take it nice and easy on the preliminaries of 100 freestyle. And as I did that, I got 21st place. So I didn't even get a chance to swim in the semifinals, watch the guy win the gold medal, and the same time I did it at the trials just a month earlier, and that was real difficult. And then my next race is the 50 free and I'm going up against you. And uh, I think both of us going into the finals, I mean, we were in the middle lanes, right? So mm -hmm. um, both of us had a shot at winning that individual medal. And uh, we came out um, just a little bit uh, shy of that. So that, that was hard for me to, to take as well. Came back and finished the Olympic strong because we had four guys on that relay on the medley 
who hadn't had the Olympic experience that we had hoped for. You know, we had world record holders in these three other strokes who were getting silver and bronze in some of these races where they should have won. And then I made that huge mistake and then hundreds of a second away from that medal in the 50s. So as we just got together as a team, brushed aside what had happened over the course of those four years, we wound up, or four years, <laughs> seven days, um, we wind up going out there and smashing the world record and winning by three seconds. So um, that was a great way to finish the Olympics for me after, you know, starting it off not too, not too great. I like to talk about the ready room a little bit because I think that, you know, races can sometimes be won and lost in there, you know, before they even start. But um, certainly for me, I think uh, the way that Gary walked into the ready room in our 50 freestyle had, had an impact because I'd never seen anybody walk in like that and, and have, he had this robe on this, this, uh, you know, stars and stripes made of silk. Um, what's, what's your recollection of that particular race? So basically in that race, um, I learned my lesson from a year earlier. So, uh, I don't remember, were you in the finals of 2003, uh, world's 50 freestyle? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you remember pop off was, uh, mm -hmm. that was towards the end of his career and he was in the finals. Um, we were ranked first and second going into the finals and he was just chatting at me and in the ready room. And as he was doing that, it's funny because, you know, you trained in Australia and you got this, you know, big Russian guy speaking with an Australian accent. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't really understand what he was doing, but it turned out he was talking some trash uh, in, in a sly way, mm. trying to get into my head. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, I'm standing behind those blocks, starting to doubt things, um, even though I was, you know, top, top seed going into the final. So that really messed with my head. So what happened was I learned from that experience. So basically in 2004, I wasn't really paying attention too much about who was wearing what. And, uh, you know, I was trying to avoid any kind of conflict or any situation that would put me in that same uh, position that happened four years ago or a year ago where I really had a bad swim because of it. There was some tension around that time between you and Gary. Am I right? Like there was, there was some stuff going on between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, there was a little, uh, this was funny because the internet was just a thing back then, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there, no cell phones, no text messaging. But, uh, you know, there, there, would be, there had been some chatter on the, on the internet about something. And then um, I, I replied to it and I probably shouldn't have. But, and then the agent came and uh, came into it and called me Spud Webb comparing to Michael Jordan or something like that and called me a relay swimmer and whatever. So I kind of just after that, just, you know, I didn't get too much involved in that. But um, yeah, I mean, we were, if you want to say rivals um, in the US. And then when it comes to being a part of relays, you know, we we're on relays together, right? So sometimes that can make things a little bit tough. And that was a, a learning lesson for me as well, because I learned that doesn't matter if you like somebody um, personally, it doesn't matter if you, um, you can't stand them. But when you get on a relay, you need to want to win for more than yourself. It's four people. So you got to go up and beyond that. And you want, you need to win for those other people as well. So you got to learn to put whatever feelings aside and do it. And I don't think we did that in that four by 100 freestyle relay from 1999 to 2004 with team USA. And I was a part of every one of those relays. I'm not saying it was my fault, um, but just all four of us couldn't come together and do what it takes. Mm, yeah, that's a good message. I mean, it's, uh, it's important. I think it shows in the results, you know, if you can't come together and I think probably the best example of that was probably in 2004 when the South Africans actually just really came together and said, Hey, we're going to do this for our country. You know, they may not have been the best of friends, but certainly yeah. at that point they came together as a team and swam as a team. Right. 
Yeah, that's what it takes, right? I mean, you need not just four guys to swim their best, but four guys to go up and beyond their best. And, and that's what they did. Um, and it wasn't even close. They just demolished everybody. And uh, it was pretty incredible what they what they did at that Olympics. And like I said, we didn't do well. And we wound up getting the bronze medal. There was some tension there in that relay as well. Um, Gary was trying to be a part of that relay, even though he was probably our fifth fastest 100 freestyler at that point. And they were putting Michael on that relay. This was a big deal. Michael had never been on the relay at the Olympics. Gary has all the experience. So there was that drama leading up to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, when it, when it came down to it, um, Gary wanted to beat me. I wanted to beat him, uh, just like any competitors do. Um, different situation afterwards. Like I said, I'm going over to your mansion having dinner. Um, I wasn't um, visiting Gary's. <laughs> Um, well, just for the record, in the 50 freestyle, you did finish fifth and I did finish sixth. You beat me in the, in the 50. I didn't want to bring that up, but, um, you know, thank you for that. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say you were better than me. Okay. I think we were like a hundredth apart or something like that. Right. (laughs) We're always pretty close. I don't know why. It's pretty close. Yeah. Um, so listen, well, we might as well just keep jumping forward another four years because, uh, we, we do have to talk about, honestly, the greatest relay performance, uh, in in olympic history i mean everybody knows um the story of it but i actually have another side to the story because i was coaching one of the french swimmers i was coaching fred busquet and um there was some stuff going on with the french team that hasn't always been publicized and i and i'm actually having fred on the podcast tomorrow so what i'm going to do people don't know this yet but i'm going to take a little bit of what you say i'm going to take a little bit of what fred says i might mix it up and create some clips but um i certainly do want your perspective on the relay because uh, like i said it was an incredible performance so um talk to me about when you actually first found out you were going to be on the a team oh to be honest with you um i'm not sure there was a doubt of that you know uh, breaking the american record at the trials um i think the only real question was what uh order was it going to be and um the talk from the beginning was most likely I would be going last because of my experience. And basically I'd anchored every relay from 2001 through 2007 freestyle and medley. So I had the most anchor experience and um, I was the fastest on the team at that point. So the U S strategy, as you know, typically we lead off uh, one of the fastest people um, and then usually have the fastest last. That's not always the case anymore, but this was uh this is what we did for many, many years. And uh, whereas the Australians, for example, they tend to lead off their, their fastest guy to try to break a world record and get in the lead. So a little different strategy there. But, um, you know, I can't remember when I found out I was going last, but it was, you know, pretty early into the camp. So I was prepared. And so did you actually sit out the, the morning swim? You just uh, swam finals? Yeah, so there was three of us who sat out the morning swim. It was myself and Garrett who got top two at the trials. And then Michael who had posted a pretty fast time at the trials um, just to show that he can swim this event, right? So what they did was they had four more guys swim on the preliminaries and out of those four, they were just gonna pick one to go to the finals. So we had three ready to go and then one more coming. Who ended up uh, taking that first spot? So that was Colin Jones. He, Colin he uh, outsplit everybody on the preliminaries to get that spot for the final. Okay, so the U.S. team meet, and at some point they, they pull you guys aside and say, hey, this is going to be the order, and you're, you're pretty comfortable with it? Yeah, like I said, I mean, that's my uh, favorite position to go. I always like finishing relays, and whether it was in the college days at UCSB, at the Big West Conference, you know, or uh, 
you know, I really looked up to when I, we swam against those big schools, even though we weren't in the same conference. I mean, we swam against Stanford and Cal and USC. Um, so for me, swimming relays going last against those guys when they're usually faster than me, I always wanted to be able to compete with those guys. So I had no problem going last. Um, I didn't care who I was swimming against at that time. I wasn't sure until the, the last minute, but, um, obviously, uh, I, I, I thought it might be Bernard just because he was the fastest, but we didn't know until it got close to the, the, uh, go time. So here's my different perspective on this. I'll give it to you now before we start this race. But um, so I'm coaching Fred Busquet. And for the past four weeks in training camp leading up to the Olympics, they have an order and Fred's going to go last. That's the order. Um, You're racing Fred Busquet. And I'm happy with that because Fred's in really good form. Um, I'm I'm training him. I feel really confident in in his abilities. Um, Beijing finals were in the morning, as, as you know. Um, so we wake up, we go to the pool and, uh, Fred's, Fred's with the French team. So I kind of come out, I'm with the Brazilian team with Caesar. So I come over at different times. By the time I get there, Fred's already at the pool and, um, and I hear Fred wants to see you. Um, I'm like, shit. Okay. So I go over and I find Fred and he's on the opposite side of the pool in the warm up pool to the French team. The French team's over here. Fred's over here. And I go over to Fred and I say, what's, what's going on, man? He's like, I'm not racing. I'm like, what do you mean you're not racing? He's like, I'm not swimming. I'm like, you, you, you're, you're swimming the relay, man. Like, you guys are in the final. You're the favorites. Like, no. He's like, they changed the order. I'm not doing it. He's like, they put Bernard last. I'm like, well, where are you going? He's like, apparently I'm going third now. He's like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, we practiced this. We, we had an agreement. This is the way it's going to go. And Fred f- flat out refused. Now, I'm going to have him on the podcast tomorrow, and he can give his own version of this uh, situation, but he was not swimming this race. And I had to basically talk him off the ledge of like, Fred, okay, these are the reasons why you, you should swim. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do because you're your own man, but you need to swim these, this race for your country. Forget about the politicians. Forget about these people over here. You're not, you never swam for them. You never competed for them. Other than your teammates, I wasn't talking about them, but I was talking about you know the peop- the other people um, that that weren't swimmers. Uh, I, but I said you do swim for your teammates. Go and swim for them. Anyway, long story short, I finally talked Fred into getting into the warm up pool and swimming. He's very very unhappy. Uh, in fact, he's really pissed off. And I said to him, look, the best thing you can do is go out and swim the fastest split of your team, and show them that you deserve to be on that. Even even whatever medal you guys get. You know, if you guys win, go out and swim the fastest split just to say that you were supposed to be on that position because they wanted Alan Bernard as the, the face of French swimming. That was their theory is he's going to be our face. So let's have him on the anchor. We're going to win this. Re- it, was, it was arrogance. At the end of the day, it was pure arrogance. So um, that was my take on that. There was, there was some stuff going on. So, um, but Fred ended up uh, swimming the third leg and swimming the fastest split out of the French team. And I was very proud of him for the performance that he put in. And he actually got, as you know, he got his swimmer into the lead. They actually touched the wall first uh, at the end of the third leg. And so um, as you're standing on the blocks and you're seeing Fred swim in and you're seeing your guy, uh, who, were you, who, who were you coming off? Uh, Colin Jones. Colin. So you're coming off. As you see Colin and Fred coming in, talk us what's going on in your head. Yeah, I mean, um, so basically during this whole camp, 
I, I, I would, I mean, we had a lot of downtime, as you know, when you're a part, part of these camps, you're sitting in hotel rooms and you're sitting in the Olympic village. You're not trying to do much, you're, you're practicing, but then you're relaxing and resting. So I laid in bed a lot and kind of listened to music, but then I'd also close my eyes and just, I'm not really a visualizer type where I, where I think about every little particular detail of everything, but more of the overall picture. Um, so I thought about the overall picture a lot. And when I'm sitting there, laying there, closing my eyes, I just think about myself being in the lead, jumping in the water, holding them off, winning the gold medal. And every once in a while, really, I think I was behind and I would just shut it off in my head. So I never really pushed through that in my head. It was just a thought. And I was like, mm. nope, I'm not thinking about that anymore. So now as I'm standing there on the blocks, being behind, obviously I can't shut it off in my head. So the first thing I can think is, I need to have the best relay start of my life. And through the course of my career, I was one of those guys where I had really good relay starts, but really safe relay starts. So I was very consistent at like the 0.15 relay takeoff exchange rate, which it's good. It's safe. You're not going to disqualify anybody. Um, and at this particular moment, as I'm thinking these thoughts, the crowd's going crazy. I have my teammates behind me yelling at me. I actually had so much adrenaline going. I jumped in the water and thought, oh no, I just left early and blew this for Team USA. And for me, I was a 0 .03 on that relay exchange, which is really, really close. But as, but as I said, being a 0 .5 my whole, 0 .15 my whole career, that's over a tenth of a second different than what I'm used to. So I felt, I felt like I disqualified. And it's funny to say that, you know, 0 .03 to 0 .15, it seems like absolutely nothing. But to us, the people that do it, I mean, it's a world of difference between that, that one-tenth of a second feels like a world of difference. Yeah, no, and it did. And uh, I was fortunate enough that I've had a lot of experiences in my career, whether it was at the local meet or um, the nationals or the world championships or whatever, that anytime that something like this would pop into my head, I learned I had to talk it over. And I started thinking about other things, got that horrible thought out of my head about that relay exchange, and then just started focusing on that first lap. I mean, you've talked about this uh, numerous occasions. I'm sure many people have, have heard the speech, but I mean, I, I talked to um, Yannick Agnell uh, about his 200 freestyle win in, in 2012. And, and he told me that, um, at some point, he just stopped thinking because a piano player doesn't think about the, the keys that they're about to play next. You know, they just go into an automatic. Um, and was there a period during this race where you kind of just clicked into automatic? So funny because typically through my career, that's where I go. Uh, it's like, you know, you hear about automatic pilot or when they're, you know, basketball player makes 10 threes in a row and they're in the zone, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of what all my best swims, I'm in the zone or I'm on automatic pilot and I finish and I think what just happened, right? Mm -hmm. But for some reason, because it started with these thoughts about the start, the whole race, I was thinking about different things. And um, as I swam that first lap, you know, Bernard's on my left, I breathed to my right. And I kept thinking about, should I take a look? Can I see where he is? But I didn't do it because I knew that would slow me down. And as I got to the turn, I flipped, I pushed off. And I realized that he increased his lead on me. So then I'm thinking, there's no way. This guy's the world record holder. I'm not going to catch him. And then talking those thoughts over positive again and feel really good. I feel really strong. I mean, just continue to swim my own race. And now I'm, I'm breathing at him. So I get 
to the to a hip and I can see myself catching up and I'm thinking about these thoughts of catching up and then it gets to the end and it, everything's just thrown out. Um, it's just pure uh, will at that point. And I actually felt this extra surge of adrenaline, kind of like when you're standing on those blocks that I talked about and you got this, this boost. And I felt that at the end of my race, which is really unusual. I've never felt anything like that before. And a lot of people will say, wow, you sped up at the end of that race. But as you know, and you watched it, I wasn't speeding up. Um, I was just uh, lucky enough that Bernard was slowing down and I was able to maintain my stroke and my speed as close to I could as possible. Yeah, man, incredible result. And obviously came over the top for a massive win. Um, you know, one of the greatest swims in, in Olympic history. Talk to me, what is it like being on a relay team with Michael Phelps? I mean, I think you should ask Michael Phelps, what's it like to be on a relay team with Jason Lezak? I think uh, that's the real important question there. But no, I'm just joking. But Michael, I mean, he came up as a little guy and I was always the old guy. So um, there's just so much hype around it, no matter if it was 2004 or if you're just talking world championships or pan packs, everyone's talking about Michael. Nobody's talking about the team. And so basically, um, I knew Michael's important, but Michael's just as important as everyone else on our team. And, and I told you from four years ago, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the feeling of you got four guys and if you don't get along, you don't swim well. And we had to put that aside. And, and I took these guys before the relay and knowing that there was so much pressure, knowing everyone was talking about Michael, I just wanted to take it off the pressure of Michael and put the focus on us as a team. And basically I, I made my, my speech really simple, really straight to the point. And I said, look guys, this is not a four by 100 freestyle relay. This is a 400. Let's go swim as one. And that's all it really took. And I could see in their eyes that they knew that this was more than one person going out and swimming a race. And it was going to, uh, you know, rely on all of us to do it right. Yeah, but there's one thing, and I appreciate you saying that. Um, there's one thing about being a competitor of Michael's. There's another thing about being a connected teammate. So what kind of energy are you pulling from him? Uh, I mean, is he saying things to you? Is he, is, is he whispering things in your ear? Is he just doing his own thing? But are you pulling some type of energy from him? Well, I think you just, if anybody's watched Michael prepare for a race, I mean, he's the most focused person you will ever see get prepared and get ready to swim. Um, so I think any of us that just look at him and sit with him can see that and, and really take that energy of, how he's preparing and use that to our advantage. Um, but he changed throughout the course. I mean, like I said, he came in as a young guy with no relay experience. He never swam in college. So he didn't understand what it was like to, you know, get up there and give it that little extra that we talked about for those relays. And from 2004 to 2008, there was a pretty substantial difference in him. And then even further swimming into, you know, as I kept going to 2012, you would see he'd be more, um, more vocal and, you know, animated towards the team and things like that. So I think he changed based on um, who he was at that time. And I think it's natural like anybody would. Now, one of the biggest questions I get from a lot of people is, um, you know, this was kind of the kickstart to Michael's, um, was it eight gold medals at that, at that meet? You know, if he loses that, he loses that record. So does, does Michael send you a stipend every month? <laughs> no, uh, there was a joke that uh, he was going to buy me some car back then or whatever. And someone's like, he should buy you a steak dinner. I mean, me and Michael are on great terms. Um, there's nothing I expect because like I said, I didn't do it for Michael. I did it for 
the four of us, all, all of us. I did it for Team USA, our country. This was a race that we had lost that we were supposed to win so many times. So as much as there, the, everything was focused on Michael, I think Michael understood that it was a lot more to it than him. And uh, the teammates had to step up, and we all did. So um, nothing's expected from that. You know, um, We all have a gold medal because of it, and it's going to go down in history. Um, we weren't supposed to win that race, and it was a spectacular race, and everyone still loves to watch it. So it's it's great to be a part of that. Now, somehow at the same Olympics, we, we decided to stay connected. Um, I was actually coaching Cesar Cielo at that point in time. I was retired. I was a coach. You're still swimming. And um, the two of you end up taking sharing. So we, we tied in 99 in the 100 NCAAs. Now I'm coaching a guy that you tie with for the bronze medal um, in the Beijing Olympics. What was that like to, to, well, you, can, you can thank, uh, uh, you could tell Caesar to thank that relay for him earning that bronze medal because <laughs> man, that relay, I'm not going to lie at 32 years old, that it took everything out of me. I was, I was done. Like I really came back two days or, or the following day because of the time change. I had to swim that prelims. My body was a wreck. I didn't think I'd even be able to get through into the semifinals. So every race after that was a challenge mentally to be able to block those thoughts out and really go for it. And, and although I went 47, six, um, you know, based on my relay time and, and taking away the exchange and even on my medley relay swim later, I, I definitely had more in me than that. I just, at that moment, that's all I had. And I had to dig down pretty deep to earn that. So for me, even though I didn't win the gold medal and I really wanted that, I mean, it was a special feeling to earn my first individual medal and overcome how terrible my body felt after um, swimming that relay and then fighting through prelims and semifinals as well, making that huge mistake four years earlier, like we talked about, uh, that was devastating for me. So uh, to be able to come back and earn that was spectacular for me. What was, uh, look, I wouldn't want to compete against Caesar, but I wouldn't want to compete against all the guys that we competed against. You, you, you kind of went the full spectrum. You were there from Popovs to Gary Halls to, you know, Anthony Irvins and, um, Peter Van and Hugenbands and Michael Clems and then Caesar Yellow comes along and, and all these other new generation of sprinters. I mean, you, you were there for all of it. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of great sprinters out there, right? You competed against all of them. How, how was your experience with all, with all that? You can't forget Nathan Adrian, all right? I mean, Nathan Adrian, yeah. and, uh, you know, I don't know what year it is. I think it was 2011 where he finally over, overtook me right into the, the top sprinter in the U S but, um, yeah, I think uh, it, it was a, it was great because I learned from a lot of these guys. Um, like you mentioned, all these names. I was the kind of guy back in the day. Um, this was when it first started. People started watching video in 2000, and it was like, wow, we have an underwater camera. This is so cool. And I learned from a lot of these people, and uh, not just technique, but then I'd watch them at meets and uh, I'd try to talk to some of these guys that were nice enough to talk and learn things about training and things like that. So um, that came in handy when I trained on my own as well. But I really um, was a student of the game, you should say, and uh, it, it was interesting. And a fun, funny story about Caesar, um, I'm, as I mentioned that thing about pop-off and learning not to focus on those other people, I got to the point where I was so comfortable and I didn't care about anybody. I wasn't going to let anybody bother me. And I started going in these ready rooms and just kind of soaking it up and look around and be like, what's this guy doing? What's that guy? You know, you'd see somebody pacing back and forth. Another guy's jumping up and down. Someone has headphones on going like mm. this. You're like, what's he listening to? And then you got Caesar. I mean, this dude is slapping his chest so hard. He's leaving these massive red marks. I was just, I'm thinking, this guy's crazy. What is he doing? Um, so 
that was my thought as I started swimming against guys like Caesar. I was more in tune with the ready room and, and just kind of my way to relax was what's everybody else up to? What are they, what are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I like it. Um, when did you start coaching yourself? That was in 2006. So my coach, Dave Salo, who was my club coach for 15 years, uh, took the job at USC and I decided that at 30 at that time, I learned so much from all these great coaches that, um, I didn't want to take on a new coach at that point in my career. And I was just going to go for it on my own. So first of all, people were telling me to retire after every Olympics. Right. So they were telling me I was too old. And now you hear the whispers of there's no way this guy's crazy. He can't do it. Right. And, and it, it's funny because people that I might know about mentioning names, but people that you, you thought that would respect you, um, you hear, Hey, I heard this story of this guy talking to this guy who knows if it's true, but you know, they're not, they're, they're not thinking you're going to make it. They're not going to, you know, um, have any confidence when it comes to this and that you're like, all right, well, um, I, I don't care what people think. I'm going to go out there and do what I know I can do. Well, well, listen, I could probably tell you everybody thought that. I mean, it make, makes no sense to say that, hey, at this age, I'm just going to coach myself because there are so many factors that go into, um, you know, a, a great performance. But, you know, a swimmer has to put in the work and then you, has to, you have to be critiqued as well. So how are you, first of all, making the decision to put the work in that you need to put in? And then how are you figuring out how to make improvements? So USA Swimming was great. Um, they, they would send people to the different clubs around the country um, and actually do some video analysis, right? So I'd have, you know, them come in, we'd look at my stroke and that was great. But also I, uh, you know, I had to go buy my own camera, right? And I got my own and I'll have my wife or my dad would come over and film me and I go home and look at it. And uh, then there, you know, I need those times where my, you know, I need a stopwatch. It wasn't just look at the clock. 23.1 wasn't good enough, uh, or 23 low, you know, I needed to know the exact time, right? So basically, I had the good support team. My wife was there to take my lactate, prick my ear to, when I did test sets to see where I was at. And um, so it wasn't just that I was on my own all the time. I did rely on some people as support, and they were great for me to help me through that. But when it comes down to doing the work, like you said, I came up with the workouts, I had to do the work, and uh, I had to learn from that. So it was a good learning experience as well. My first year, I went by the book and I said, I'm writing my workouts down. This is exactly what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And there were days where it didn't work out well, but I just did it anyways because I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then I started writing workouts and making changes. And then I started just showing up to the pool with an idea and just doing it. Um, so that's how it evolved over those couple years. And, and it was better for me to understand today is going to be this kind of day. How do I feel in warm up? okay, now let me start thinking about the sets I need to do to make it this kind of day. So, um, you know, it was great. I know you coach for a long time. So, you know, you watch your swimmers and you might think this is what I wanted to do, but they look terrible today. And mm -hmm. I'm sure like they say in football, you probably made an audible. And I did a lot of audibles through the end of my career, trying to figure out the best way. It's easy when you got one person, when you're coaching a group of 20 or 30, you know, you might be able to make an audible, but that's not going to help all 20 or 30, right? So when you got one, it's really easy to dial that in and figure out what's best for that one person. There's a lot of external confidence that you need to get from people and, and, I, and you get that from teammates or you get that from coaches. Where were you getting your external confidence from? Where were you getting that positive reinforcement from? No, I think my, my wife was probably my biggest support, right? Um, not only during those hard times, but uh, even during the good times, right? So she was always there to help me, you know, get through some of these bad swims or anything like that, but also to, you know, reassure me 
on certain occasions too. Um, even though when I did something well, uh, there wasn't somebody always there or I had a good practice. It was somebody to go home and talk to and say, man, I just did this in practice today because I was so excited about it, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell my teammates or I couldn't, uh, you know, rub it in their faces. You know, we like to play in college at a great time, you know, being all your best friends, you get a joke with them all the time. And, and uh, when you beat them, you mess with them, they beat you, they mess with you. Right. So that wasn't there. I was lucky enough to have, you know, a casual swimmer that was a retired Olympian or somebody that would show up every now and again to mm -hmm. just kind of keep me company. Right. But when you're talking about going all out swims, these guys weren't keeping up, but they were there for that fun aspect of it every once in a while where I needed that, um, that mental part of it, where it's so hard to do on your own all the time. Um, so it was good to get some of those laps in. That makes sense now. So all the money that Michael Phelps has given you, you're filtering that to your wife now. I get that. Okay, good. <laughs> I haven't seen a check come in in years. I don't know where, where's all that money going. Come on, Michael. Come on. Um, well, listen, uh, there's, there's a lot to talk about and, and um, I, I kind of want to jump ahead because I know you're on a time schedule, but how did you get involved in being the GM of, you know, the, the first professional league? How'd you, how'd you get involved with the, the Cali Condors? So, um, yeah, back in 2018, when there was this talk of uh, starting this league, they were trying to do an event in, um, what was it, in December. They were just going to do a one-off event, and uh, they needed four teams, right? So there was going to be two teams in the United States, two teams in Europe, and Lenny Kraselberg was already the, the general manager of one team, and there was a meeting at ASCA, and a lot of the coaches and other people that were, you know, talking to ISL people and Lenny and um, my name was brought up and recommended. And when it came to my attention, I was, I was thinking, this is amazing, right? This is a sport that I've been in my whole life. It was hard enough for me to retire because I love that competitive aspect of it. Um, there's no way I could pass up an opportunity to give these guys an opportunity to do what I wish was there for me and I could have done. As, as you know, like I love the race and I swam till 36. Um, before I had kids and everything, I was traveling to Australia to race every year, at, you know, at different meets because um, just love that opportunity. And you can almost feel like a professional when you swam in Australia, right? Um, so that was lacking. And to, to come up with something like this, for me, it was a no brainer to get involved. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, I just got a text message from Nick Shackle. Nick Shackle says hello. My buddy. Yes. <laughs> He's now part yeah, of this Nick, podcast. Uh, Nick trained with uh, <laughs> Nick trained with me in the 2000 days, and then he stayed in uh, California for a little bit, even after he retired. And we used to go to the gym and work out together a little bit. Man, that guy was strong. He big, big guy. Good dude. Uh, he just said to say hello. He knows I'm doing this right now. So, um, well, cool, man. Listen, uh, we'll talk, talk to us about the second season of the ISL. Uh, how you know? There's been some announcements lately that the Australians have pulled out, and there's there's a statement coming out by the ISL in terms of feeling like there's been some bullying in regards to that. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, the problem is in our sport, these athletes aren't really looked at as professionals. I mean, some of them have sponsors, some of them go in, in Europe, for example, there's like these money meets you could go to, which I did. I, I travel to Europe all the time and they pay you to show up a little prize money. Um, but there's not that same sense of uh, respect as a professional, like some of these other major leagues, like baseball, basketball, even in Europe, soccer, you name it. So I think that, uh, you know, governing bodies can tend to uh, look at the Olympics and what makes sense to them is the Olympics, right? So um, the NBA guys, for example, they're going to go to the Olympics. 
but um, they're also paid by a team to perform, right? So we don't really have that separation yet. Um, it's going to take some time for that to happen. And it's also going to take a mindset of all of these athletes to say, I'm a professional and this is my job and I'm going to do what's best for me to go out there and, and number one, make money. Number two, achieve dreams, whether it is an Olympic gold medal, but also dreams of, you know, being a star player or the best swimmer in ISL. That, Cause that's going to be a dream for kids, um, you know, in years to come, they're going to want to say like, I wanted to play for the Lakers. There's going to be kids growing up pretty soon watching, you know, the great swimmers on my team and thinking, I want to be like Caleb Dressel and swim for the Condors. So that's going to take time, but I think it has to start with that sense of professionalism. And until everybody can understand that the athletes need to have that feeling more than they do right now, but the federations also have to respect that as well. Listen, you're on the inside, you, you know, as a GM, um, you know, the answer to this question, I guess you've got a pretty good idea. I mean, is this really sustainable? Is this something where you feel like at some point in the near future, whether it be a year or two or three, that you can be a standalone club and provide, you know, the amount of resources that you need in order to survive as a club? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a growing process and I think it's take, it's going to take maybe a little longer than everyone hoped for. Um, but there's a major, a major thing happen, as I'm sure you read, that we have a deal now in the U.S. with CBS. So to make any league work, you need money, right? And, and to get a TV deal, that's a, that's a huge thing. And um, to, to sustain with these clubs and to bring in money for these clubs, we're going to need sponsors. And sponsors aren't going to give you money unless those sponsors feel like they get something, a return on that investment. And now we have some things we can offer them, being able to be on a major network like that. And as we start growing and we start becoming bigger and more people are recognizing this, it's going to, it's going to happen. It's just going to take some time. Um, and, and I think all the clubs are going to be able to do the same thing. I can't really speak for Europe. I know Eurosport's a big thing over there. Um, but at least in the U S this is a huge step for us. Awesome, man. Well, listen, um, you feeling pretty confident about your team this year. You feeling like you, you're the, the best team in California again. <laughs> well that was nice to be able to beat the la current in the final last year we did lose them in the derby by a couple points i mean we had a rough year we lost to the, uh, la by a couple points we lost the energy one time by a couple points and then the final and they go our way uh third place but um to be honest with you a lot of great swimmers coming back on the team really really good pickups as well um it was devastating obviously to lose the australians um but the one thing i will say i did pick up quite a few really good swimmers uh, to fill their spots. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to a good season. I think there's going to be so many different, um, you know, factors involved. Uh, you have to look at certain people were out of the water a lot longer than other people. Some people have already raced. Other people haven't raced. Um, it's, it's just going to be really interesting. It's going to be a different season than anything. And, and as you, if you're a fan of other sports as I am, I mean, there's plenty of, look at the Milwaukee Bucks, right? They had this amazing season and they're out of the playoffs already. So everyone comes back differently when they take a break or they have a, a we're going through a pandemic like we are. Um, you can't expect um, to look on paper and say energy standard, boom, boom, boom. They have the best team. They're going to win. Or Cali Condors, we're going to win. So we want to beat energy standard. Don't, don't get, don't get me wrong on that. That was, that was tough to lose them three times last year. So we're coming back uh, with a vengeance and we're hoping to win it all. 
Well, listen, man, you're uh, you're an incredible person. You, you've you've had a, a a huge impact on on the sport of swimming uh, in general, both in the U.S. and now internationally. Um, you're a good man. I know that you're a, you're a good uh, father and husband and, and just a good leader in the community. So I've appreciated knowing you as a, as a friend and also as a competitor, you made, you brought the best out of me, man. Like there were many days where I was thinking about how I'm going to beat Jason, Jason Lezak in practice, you know? So, um, you know, just thankful for the relationship that we've had over many years and thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it, Brett. You thanks for having me on. And next time I'm in Australia, even if it is Michael Clem's house that you invited me over to, um, just uh, I'd love to have dinner again. Take me out somewhere nice. Anytime, man. All right. Well, good luck uh, at the at the ISL this year, and I'll, I'll be watching from afar this time. All right. Thanks. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye.